thought it was a tame lion. It was a very strange sight. At the end of last year, a man had somehow managed to climb into a lion's den in a zoo in Taiwan. Apparently, he was watching too many Tarzan films. And once inside the enclosure, he then confronted two large African lions. Now, he thought he could control a lion. But in fact, he was in deadly danger. The large male lion pounced, and it bit the man on the arm. Fortunately, zoo workers came to his rescue, and the lion was driven off. Eight centuries before Christ, a whole nation was completely oblivious to a far greater danger that they faced. And so the Lord sent a messenger, a humble farmer named Amos, to Samaria, the capital city of the nation of Israel, with a final warning. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The roar of the lion means it is about to pounce on its victim. The judgment of the Lord is about to fall on the nation of Israel. David Hubbard comments, The words of Amos burst upon the landscape of the northern kingdom, Israel, with all the terror and surprise of a lion's roar. But there is one final chance for those who will listen to the prophet's message. And that message is recorded in the book in the Old Testament that bears his name. It's one of the books we call the Minor Prophets because of its short length. And you can see Amos on the graph on the screen. Now the nation of Israel had separated after the death of King Solomon. Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern kingdom. And it was Amos who was to give this message of God's judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel. So let's look at the book of Amos together under the title, The Lion Roars. There are nine chapters, but let's look at one of the key passages in chapter 5. And it's on page number 919 of the Pew Bibles. So let's read Amos chapter 1 and sorry Amos chapter 5 and verses 1 to 27. But before we do that, let's first pray and ask for God's help to understand his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand and to put your word into practice. For we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's Amos chapter 5 and verse 1. And it's quite a long passage. Verse 1. Hear this word, O house of Israel. This lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. 
deserted in her own lands, with no one to lift her up. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The city that marches out, a thousand strong for Israel, will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out, a hundred strong, will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and better will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns blackness into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. He flashes destruction on the strongholds and brings the fortified city to ruin. You hate the one who reproves in court, and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor, and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offences, and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent man keeps quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hands on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. I hate. I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Before we look at this prophecy in more detail, let's sing a hymn. Eyes were good for the people of Israel. The watchword of the day was success. That's where they were at. This was a time of peace and prosperity unrivaled since the glory days of King Solomon. That astute soldier statesman, Jeroboam II, had turned the economy around militarily. And the archenemy, Assyria, was distracted by internal troubles. They were unable to pursue their expansionist policies. Israel was safe, so she thought. And so it was to a comfortable and complacent Israel that Amos addresses this. Now in such circumstances, how does a prophet get a people to listen a message about God's judgment. Here's how. He first proclaims God's judgment on the surrounding nations. Imagine the scene. A speaker goes to the mound and he announces judgment on the surrounding nations of Scotland. Now that's what Amos does and we can see this on the map. First is Damascus to the northeast, the capital city of ancient Aram, modern Syria. Then Gaza, on the southwest coast, one of the Philistine city-states. Then further north to the port of Tyre, a leading Phoenician city. Next to the nation of Edom to the south, and on to Ammon to the east, modern Jordan with its capital Amman. On south to Moab. And as Amos goes down the list, his words evoke a warm response and applause from his audience. But here comes the greatest cheer yet. He announces judgment on his own nation, the nation of Judah. And it's similar to someone from England coming to Scotland and announcing God's judgment on the English. Well done, mate, you can hear someone shout. Or well done, Jimmy, if you're from Glasgow. By now the crowds would be in high spirits, that's a joke by the way, don't be offended. By now the crowds would be in high spirits, and they would be cheering, just as if Scotland won the Six Nations Rugby Championship. And I think there's more chance of me going to the moon. But wait, Amos now comes to Israel itself, and they are in for a rude awakening. Israel would be judged by God. Now this sets the scene for the whole book of Amos. And we pick the story up in chapter 5. And what we'll find here is both the Lord's complaint against his people and also the Lord's challenge to his people. So firstly, we see the Lord's complaint against his people. Amos addresses the people of Israel as though he's addressing the passengers on the Titanic. 
The movie Titanic, which was the most expensive film ever made, told the incredible story of this famous liner, which sunk, just in case you didn't know that. Now, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet played characters who went on board on the 10th of April, 1912. And if you like a weepy romantic film, you'll really enjoy Titanic. Now, on board Titanic, they all thought they were having a wonderful party. However, the luxury liner was about to strike an iceberg a few days later, at 11.40pm on the 14th of April, 1912. Three hours later, she lay broken in two at the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. Now says Amos to God's people, the iceberg of God's judgment is coming closer and closer. So the question is, why? Why is God's judgment coming? What had Israel done? Why would they be judged? We find here that Amos gives two reasons, two very clear reasons, why God has a complaint against his people. Why this iceberg of God's judgment is coming closer and closer. And as a church, we are the new Israel. Therefore, we have got to listen to this warning. And we'll see that Israel had done two things. And that is why God would judge them. Firstly, Amos says God will judge them because their lives were characterized by superficial religion. The people of Israel were going to their church services. Look at verse 5. They were going to their festivals at Bethel, Beersheba, and Gilgal. They were going to Keswick, Spring Harvest, and Word Alive. But in their case, in their case, Amos says, stop going. Let's read verse 5. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Question. Why does Amos tell them to stop going? Because their hearts were not right. You see, they had lost sight of who God is. God had simply become useful to them. And so their songs of worship, Amos says, meant nothing. If you look at verse 21, we see the extent to which God hates merely showy external religious actions. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings... I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. You see, they were singing their praises to the God of Israel on the Sabbath. However, on the other six days of the week, they lived as though God did not exist. You see, what they claimed to believe bore no connection with, what, with how they behaved something that's become very popular on television is reality TV. And one of the top programs is 
I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Now, if you haven't seen it, let me tell you what happens. In this programme, hosted by Ant and Dick, I think that's her real names, viewers get to watch how famous people live in some jungle somewhere, such as Jenny Bond. Little, sweet, innocent-looking Jenny Bond. Appearances can be deceptive, as we saw in the programme. Now imagine this. Imagine that someone made a secret video of your life, showing you at home, at recreation, and so on, and then showing it next Sunday on the screen. Is there anything we'd be ashamed about that was incompatible with what we profess as we meet together on Sunday? Well, I for one am thankful there is no such video. But think, was there not someone who did see not only everything we do, but everything we think? Do we not pray to the one in whom all hearts are open and from whom no secrets are hid? You know, it's a great privilege, if you're a Christian, to be able to call God, the creator of this awesome universe, our Father. And that is a tremendous privilege. And if you're not a Christian, there is nothing in life more important. But there is also such a thing as a fear of God. A right fear of God. God is not our mate, or our pal, or our buddy. He is God. He is the unchanging God. However, Israel forgot that. And that's the first complaint God had against his people. They had lost sight of who God is. And notice, this had a knock-on effect in how they treated other people. So the second reason why this iceberg of God's judgment is coming closer is because of their social injustice. Last week, I received an email about a pastor in Colombia. Now this pastor has been working in the southern part of Colombia for the past 20 years, where there is a heavy guerrilla presence. But last week, local guerrilla commanders demanded that he pay a large amount of money out of the church funds. He is poor, and then he is also concerned about the welfare of his own family. An extreme case of social injustice. But in many ways, it was the same in Israel. Injustice was everywhere. However, it is an injustice that is totally against the character of God. Gary Smith, in his NIV application commentary, writes, Justice is an outworking of God's character of holiness. But the nation does not emulate him. They have changed the sweet experience of dealing with people on righteousness into a bitter and evil thing to their mistreatment of those who are poorer or less powerful. Amos laments these unbearable injustices. And that's what verses 11 and 12 says, if you look down. It says, You trample on the poor and force them to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes, and you deprive the poor of justice in the courts. 
You see, in Israel, an unjust form of tax had been imposed on the poor, a bit like a protection racket. And this angered God. Alex Matier comments in his commentary, The assumption that crimes, social offences, are sins, offences against God, lies at the heart of famous sociology. In every aspect of society, it is with the Lord that we have to deal. Whether conduct pleases him and comes under his blessing, or offends him and merits wrath. Now, I'd be very surprised if there's anyone here at Charlotte Chapel tonight who is deliberately oppressing the poor. But there are still some tough questions that we need to ask ourselves. For example, today in 2005, the World Bank estimates that 1.1 billion people live on less than $1 a day. Now that's equivalent to about one-fifth of the world's population living in extreme poverty. And 2.8 billion people still live on less than $2 a day. So here's the question. How much of my resources do I pump into my quality of life? And my rights to be happy? How concerned am I about the millions of people in the world today who still live in abject poverty? Who are denied justice? And that's the challenge we find here in Amos. The people in Amos' day had so focused on their quality of life and the hardness came in that drained their compassion. So now we come to the Lord's challenge to his people. On Wednesday, we woke up to find snow on the ground and lots of it. Now when I was younger, I loved snow. Road gritters were public enemy number one. Why? Because they would come along and they would make the snow into slush. Totally unfair. And when it snowed, what we'd do is build massive snowballs and then play hide and seek behind them. Yes, I had a very simple upbringing. And what we find here in the book of Amos is that we are told by God to seek. Now the two challenges the Lord gives his people are seek God and seek good. So firstly, we are to seek God. Seek me and live, we read in verse 4. Seek the Lord and live, we read in verse 6. The people of Israel, as we saw, were going to their church services. They were going to their conferences, their CUs. Everything on the outside looked okay. But there was something wrong. It's like the food scare we just had in the UK. Over 300 products were removed from shelves, such as Worcester sauce crisps. And I love Worcester sauce crisps because of a risk of contamination. You see, on the outside, the food looked great. But on the inside, it wasn't. And that was the problem with the people of Israel. They looked okay, but they had taken the rise of God. And you see, no one ever stops walking with God overnight. It happens gradually. We gradually stop living for God. And we gradually just live for ourselves more and more. 
Last year, we went on holiday to Italy, to Lake Garber. And we thought we'd be very cultured, as we are, but not really, and go and see the famous city of Venice. And if you like spending lots of money, your husband's money, on designer gear, then Venice is definitely the place to be. And just go and ask Alison. And we had a great time until the heavens opened and we got totally drenched. And there's a picture of a very empty looking St. Mark's Square. And the thing about Venice is that it's a city that is very gradually sinking. Now, that's what happens when someone stops walking with God. They gradually stop living for God. And there are some obvious signs to watch out for in our own lives. For example, our morals will become more relaxed. Our jobs will become the most important thing in our lives. Our motives, as we heard this morning, will become twisted. Our joy will turn into resentment. And get this, our vision of God will become smaller. Now God's word in that situation is very clear. He says, seek me. And that's what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. We read it in the book of Revelation, which had become lukewarm. He said, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And you see, that's why we were created. To seek God, to know God, and to enjoy our relationship with God. And there is nothing in life more important. Jim Packer, the great theologian, writes in his book, Knowing God. What makes life worth living is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination, and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has, in a way that no other person has. Listen, for what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? So let me ask you a direct question. Do you know God tonight? Is Jesus Christ a reality in your life? And from firstly seeking God and knowing God, the Lord's challenge to his people is now to seek good. And here we come to the core message of this book, and it's summarized in two verses. Look at verse 14. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And verse 24. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Notice the word stream. We used to live in Kinross near Perth. And at the weekends, we would sometimes travel up the M90 to a place called Dunkeld. And there's a place up near the cathedral where you can relax by the stream as you see it go into the River Tay. And it shows how exciting our weekends are. Now this picture of a stream, of pouring out water, is often a symbol in the Bible to highlight the consecration of life to God. Alice Mateer comments helpfully, The Lord is looking for lives 
whose energies abundantly and perpetually are flowing out in righteousness and justice. The cultivation and holding of sound moral principles of life and the practice of these principles in personal and social behaviour. And religion is pointless unless this is its outflow. And we see this in the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And that means I cannot be godly and not be concerned about the 28 million people in Africa who are living with HIV or AIDS. And I cannot be godly and not be concerned about Ethiopia paying $116 million each year in debt servicing in a country where 35 million people live below the poverty line. And I cannot be godly and not be concerned that 100 million children today in 2005 did not get the chance to go to school. So what does that mean for us if you're a Christian? It means having a holistic vision of the mission of the church. It means both evangelism and social action. John Stott, the president of Langham Partnership, describes well this holistic mission. This is what John Stott says. The recent debate about the rival merits of evangelism and social responsibility was never necessary. It expressed an unbiblical dualism between body and soul, this world and the next. In any case, we are called both to witness and to serve. Both are part of our Christian ministry and mission. Take the example of William Wilberforce. He was a Christian who spoke out against slavery at a time when it was almost universally accepted. And finally, just a month after his death, in 1833, slavery was abolished throughout the British Empire. So as we come to a close, how do we apply this in our own lives today in 2005? Can I try and be very practical here? This year, the UK hosts the G8 Summit at Glen Eagles. Now, it's a meeting of the eight most powerful governments in the world. And this year, the UK also chairs the European Union. Now, here's what Tear Fund and over 100 charities are campaigning for. And it's a campaign called Make Poverty History. They are asking the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, to help secure international agreements that benefit the world's poorest people so that things like clean water, lack of clean water, poor healthcare and lack of access to education are relegated to the history books. Now here's something we all can do. As you leave tonight, you'll be given a postcard addressed to the Prime Minister Tony Blair that you can sign and send back to Tear Fund. And on this postcard, you are asking Tony Blair for greater justice to be shown to the world's poor. And if you want more information, you can also pick up a free booklet in the lounge after the service. We started tonight by thinking about God as the lion. Sadly, 
the nation of Israel refused to heed the warning. And they would face God's judgment. And in historical terms, that judgment was the Holocaust of 722 BC, when Sargon, king of Assyria, put an end to the nation of Israel forever. The challenge for us is, will we seek God, and will we seek good? Writing just a few years after the prophet Amos, the prophet Micah summed up this challenge, and he said, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. May that be a reality for each one of us. Let's pray.